in this series, here's what we're doing. We're looking at the life and at the person of Jesus. We're trying not so much to look at his teachings, but at the person of Jesus. As we approach Christmas, you all know the story of Christmas and the facts of Christmas, but we wanted just to focus on who is Jesus? Who was this, this guy, this man, this baby, this boy, as Kesselon taught last week? Um, and so the theme for this series has been Emmanuel, which is like that second song we sang. Um, what does it mean that God's with us? That, how is it possible that the creation became, the creator, I'm sorry, became the creation? Like that sort of boggles our mind. Our creator became the creation. And uh, what that must have been like for Jesus. And yet, fully God and fully man. That he wasn't like mostly man and sort of had a little bit of God's powers. Or he wasn't mostly God with a little bit of human consciousness. No, Jesus was fully God and fully man together. Um, Whoa. And so that's sort of what we're looking at, some of the events of the life of Jesus. Um, So if you have a Bible or an app, turn to Matthew 3, verse 13. And uh, Matthew 3.13, that's where we're going to camp out tonight. I'm going to read it. Let me, as you turn there, keep turning there, I'd love for you to find it. Find it on your app if you have an app. But let me pray first, and then I'm just going to read this passage, and we're going to dive into it. Father, God, here we are. And a uh, week and a half before Christmas, all these students, God, I think of just um, what each one of these students in here tonight, the things that they're carrying with them. Uh, God, maybe stress about schoolwork, maybe finals next week, maybe not, maybe just projects, homework, like the day after day homework. Um, God, maybe the mundaneness of life, how it seems so familiar, and um, every day's kind of the same, and every day's kind of boring, Um, and yet, God, in the midst of all of that, here you are, God. And you invite us to come and to fellowship with you and to commune with you and, and with other Christians. And God, some of us are still trying to figure that out. We're not even sure what we believe about you, God. Um, and yet, God, you, you just come to us. You want to be close to us. We want to be close to you. God, what do we do when we don't feel close to you? God, what do we do when, uh, in our minds, it's, it's like should be a formula and I did the right things, but I still don't feel close to you. God, how does this whole thing work? So God, would you show up tonight? Would you make your presence known? God, would you speak to us through your word? And um, God, teach us something. God, uh, draw near to us. Allow us to feel your presence tonight. That's what we want. That's what we hope for. And God, thank you for Christmas and all that it means. God, we're excited about another year, another Christmas. But God, tonight, help to focus and to be here now. We need you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Matthew 3, 13 through 4, verse 11, says this, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. 
Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. It's really like a huge passage. We don't really talk about the baptism of Jesus a lot. Maybe you've heard something on the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness by Satan. You know, of the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, only two of them actually even talk about the birth narrative of Jesus. Only Matthew and Luke talk about Jesus as a baby. Mark and John don't mention it at all. And yet, I want you guys to like really hone in on this passage we just read tonight because all four Gospels give this account of the baptism of Jesus and then his temptation. All four Gospels. And so in this passage, we see an extremely important overarching principle and I'm excited to talk about this tonight. Uh, it took me reading this like probably 10 times before I found this. In fact, I was planning just to talk about the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And, uh, and at just starting the passage, uh, there's this word. So it's bound up in this little word, this one word. And you see it right at the beginning of chapter 4, this word then. Then, chapter 4, verse 1, at the very beginning. There's baptism, then there's a battle, Right? There's a voice from heaven, then there's a voice from hell. The voice from heaven just speaks once. The voice from hell keeps talking and keeps talking and keeps talking to him. First there's comfort, then there's conflict. First there's strength, then there's weakness. First there's joy, this encounter with John the Baptist. Then there's testing, temptation. First there's water, then there's desert. First there's water, then there's dry parched, then there's wilderness. So does that word then just, just mean then, you know? I mean, is that just the way it happened? He was baptized, and then, you know, like, that happened, and now this is happening. Then this. I don't think so. I don't think that's just the order. Uh, my, what I want to convince you tonight, and I think studying the other uh, Gospels as well, the then there is actually a therefore. The baptism happened, therefore, uh, the temptation. In fact, in Mark's gospel, Mark says immediately. It gives the same account, the voice from heaven, this is my son whom I love with him, I am well pleased. It says the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness to be tempted. Isn't that interesting? One word, then. And I want to convince you tonight that then means therefore. And I think there's a principle there, and we're going to hone in on that. Um, the water led to the desert. The joy led to the testing, the strength from the baptism, prepared Jesus for the weakness. Forty days and forty nights. Can you guys imagine? 
40 days, that's over a month of no food. You go, is that even possible? Some of you are thinking that right now. Is that, can you even survive that? Not eating for that long? The comfort prepared Jesus for the conflict. The baptism led to the battle. What happened at this baptism? Someone came down on Jesus, the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God was guiding Jesus, directing, directing him, strengthening him. Now, we totally argue, and I think it was probably true, that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, was on Jesus from the beginning, right, to a certain extent. Kesselon taught last week about Jesus, the boy at the temple. He's 12 years old, and he, as a 12-year-old, recognized this temple is my father's house. Like, he knew his deity. He knew he was God somehow as a teenager, which, again, just boggles our minds. And yet, all four Gospels record this account of the baptism of Jesus as if this baptism is sort of like Jesus' inauguration ceremony. At the beginning of all four Gospels, that is what sort of kicked off Jesus' teaching ministry. And so we'll dive into that in just a second. But he gets, he's led by the Spirit. Here's the principle, though, for tonight. So if you write anything down, write this down, and you could probably memorize this. But spiritual baptism, therefore, spiritual battle. Spiritual baptism, therefore, spiritual battle. And now, of course, I'm not trying to tell you tonight, and don't think so, that if, if you got baptized a year ago, or two years ago, or three years ago, that suddenly, like, that brings on this, like, onslaught from Satan. I'm not saying that, but I am saying when there is, when there is spiritual, uh, you're close to God, like you're growing in God, you're encountering God, you're near to God, many times there's a battle right after that. Comfort, power, love, therefore, turmoil, testing, conflict, frustration. This is hard. Why do I not feel close to God? Where is God anyway? I thought when I became a Christian, and on and on. Heaven, therefore, the voice of hell. Now, I know many of you in here pretty well, some of you more than others. We've gone on mission trips together. We were just in uh, DIY together. Maybe you have gone to the Dominic Dominican Republic with me. And if you go on that Dominican Republic trip, like, we get close. We sort of get really close. All of us are in a house together and um, sharing bathrooms. And we're like, but, so I know some of you really well. And some of you, you really want to be closer to God. I mean, your genuine heart, like, you want more of God. And we sing that last song tonight, I want to be close to you. You go, that's seriously me. You go to the fall retreat, you're expecting something. You want to get something out of that retreat. And maybe you do, maybe you don't, but you want it. And so get, imagine this. Imagine getting to the position where you are absolutely and totally pleasing to God. Then in every way, God says, I am pleased with you. You are my child. Um, you felt so close to God. Imagine you got there. How would your life go? That's what I want to know. That's what I'm curious about. If you got to that point, how do you think your life would go? How do you think you would feel on a day-to-day -day basis? I want to push you on this a little bit tonight because when troubles begin to happen to you and when conflicts begin to happen to you and when difficulties begin to happen to you, what do you almost always assume, you guys? When bad things happen to you, what do you almost always assume about God, about his presence? with you. You assume I must have done something wrong, right? You just do. We go, God's punishing me. I got grounded. This happened, uh, and my parents responded this way. I got in a car accident. You go, God's, I must have done something really bad because God is punishing me, I'm pretty sure. If, if like, we default into this karma thought, right, 
So if, if life's going bad, we go, I must be bad. If your life is going good, on the flip side, you go, my life, I must be pretty good. I must be better than other people because my life is going very, very well. And that's just how we sort of govern our life. And we actually think God operates that way, that God operates on a karma mentality, right? We just do. When bad things happen, our first thought is like, that's why. It's because I did that two months ago. That's why this is happening. Oh, my goodness. But God does not operate that way. And we sort of know that, right? But there was one person here. We have Jesus, who is the Son of God, who was completely pleasing to the Father, right? Completely, absolutely had a voice from heaven audibly say so here at his baptism, right? And yet, how did Jesus' life go? Like, what were the results of his life at the end? He was pursued by a mob. He was betrayed by his friends. He was, he was nailed to a cross, right? So what's the principle? Spiritual baptism, therefore, spiritual battle. The more, I'm going to put it like this, the more God pours his strength and his peace into your life, the more conflict, temptation, and strife will occur. Have you guys ever, have you experienced that? Have you thought about that? In fact, maybe if you feel like my life is going pretty well and I really don't feel that that much, maybe, and I hate to put this so harshly, maybe you're not led by the Spirit of God. You guys, and that applies to me as well. When I go, you know what, like, I just don't feel that close to God. Like, everything's sort of, uh, but maybe I'm not really all that tapped into God, maybe I'm really not surrendering my life to God. Maybe I'm not wanting to be led by the Spirit. We just sort of do Christianity, but it becomes this rote religion. We're not even really into it. We're not, we're not attempting great things for him. We're not even trying to please him. And so what's going on here? These two, event, these two events are connected. Like I said, Mark says immediately. Why is that? In all four Gospels, these two events are connected. What am I trying to say I'm trying to say this, Christianity is a fight, you guys. It is a battle. And it's a very, very real battle. In Jesus, the baby grew into a man, fully God, fully man, and he fought the battle for us. But we're in the middle of it. And Satan, as we'll see, he's a real enemy. And he really wants to destroy you, especially if you're a Christian. Because you are thwarting his kingdom. I mean, I want you to hear tonight, anyone who offers you a Christianity without some level of tears, without some level of difficulty, is not giving you the real deal. And I know that for a majority of you in here, that doesn't really compute with you because your life, like up to this point, has been pretty easy. And you know what, to be honest, mine has been too, for the most part. But as you get older, and your leader could attest to this, Things happen and life doesn't go your way and you maybe start to get jaded or bitter or go, God, I didn't think my life was going to go this way. But I'm telling you, Christianity may not make your life better. And we've talked about that, I think, a fair amount this year at Oasis. Because there's a part of me that goes, I don't want you to graduate thinking that being a Christian equals material blessing, health, wealth, prosperity. There's all kinds of blessings on the inside, you guys. Your life, you might become a Christian or your friend might your, might, your life might get worse. We, many of us, fall into karma Christianity. And we go to God because we want stuff and we want our lives to be good. And we were told that that's what Christianity does. And so we buy into a genie in a bottle 
Christianity, and that's not the real thing. True Christianity is a fight. So I'm going to do some question and answer here. Three questions as we dive into this passage a little bit. I'll try to go quick here. But number one, who's the enemy? Who's our enemy in this passage? We all know the answer to that. Satan, the devil, right? And this text teaches us that Satan is real, that he is the very, very real enemy of God. And if you're a Christian here tonight, as I've already said, Satan wants to harm you. He wants to destroy your life. And if you're not a Christian here tonight, quite frankly, Satan probably doesn't care a whole lot about you because you're not a threat to his kingdom. But there are two kingdoms in this world. There's God's kingdom, a kingdom of love and grace and joy and peace. The fruit of the Spirit might come to mind. And then there's an evil kingdom of sin and of selfishness and of brokenness. And we can look around the world and we can see those two kingdoms existing. And I don't want anybody to be offended by this, but I think more and more in our world, we're just throwing out things like, like that's ridiculous. You, I don't know if you, maybe you have friends that would just say, Satan, are you kidding me? I want to say this, that if you don't believe in a real Satan and in a real kingdom of darkness, you're naive. Look at the evidence. I think there's logical evidence. There's empirical evidence. There's evidence all over our world. I'm saying it's naive and it's superficial, I think, to write off the devil. There's a lot, there's plenty of authors, thinkers, Christian or not, that have thrown out hell altogether. That would say there's no way hell is a real place, a real thing, not physical place, but a real, a spiritual reality, an actual place. They just throw it out. You just can't do, you can't just pick and choose when you come to the Word of God, you guys. If Jesus talks about Satan the way he does, do you not think that is, if there's, if there is a very real personal supernatural good being, and you believe in God, right? Then why would, how could it not be also true that there's a supernatural, personal, evil being? Now again, don't think Satan, you probably learned this before, right? Satan is not the opposite of God, or like on the same level as God. Satan, right, is more on the, the level that would combat against like the archangel, archangel Michael, which is a fallen angel. Satan's already been defeated, and yet he has this king, he has this rule still yet in in today's world. Why is it that every time you go on a fall retreat, you maybe come home feeling really great and full spiritually and very connected to God, or like, that was incredible, and I just feel really close to God, and yet maybe that same week, by Wednesday or Thursday, you are tempted to do stuff that you have not done in months and months. You, do, you fall in some sinful way that you haven't done in years. You just, whatever it is that you struggle with, why is that? I think many times we seriously, we want to go deeper with Jesus. We want to get there. And we almost honestly feel like there's some sort of like physical power that just isn't quite letting us like get there in our minds or in our worship or in our prayer life or we just don't have time or we're just way too busy. And we go, I actually want that, but I feel like there's this barrier that's like keeping me from God. What's going on? Like what is that? As soon as Jesus gets a word from his father there's a counterattack from Satan, right? There's always a counterattack. Why? It's a battle. And Satan wants to bring your downfall. So that's the enemy. Second question is this. How does Satan attack? How does Satan attack us? Does Satan attack us like in the exorcist? 
or The Exorcism of Emily Rose. I didn't have time to do the research on all the like hottest horror movies. I'm not that into those. Some of you guys are. Um, is that the way that Satan like comes after us? Maybe, possible. Certainly, like there's detailed accounts of some of those things, right? There's there's a demon uh, possession all over Scripture. You think that stuff still happens? I think so. We don't hear about it all that much. You know, our Zambia friends over in Zambia, sounds like there's like demon-possessed people all over the place in Zambia. Is that the way that Satan mainly attacks us? I don't think so. I don't think that's the main way. I think the primary way that Satan attacks is not the way we normally think about it. Or It's not knives coming at you. It's not your house being haunted. And I think we all sort of know that. Satan says to Jesus three things, right? Look back at the text. There's three times Satan tries to tempt him. Number one, tell these stones to become bread. Just eat, Jesus. You're hungry. Tell these stones to become bread. He says, throw yourself off the temple and float. He quotes scripture at Jesus, right? He says, your angels, I know how your angels work. They're going to carry you. And so just jump off and you're going to float and all the people will see you and it'll be fantastic. Or the third one, he says, I will give you all the power over all the kingdoms of the world if you bow down and worship me. That's not weird possession stuff. That's not knives. He's, he didn't like, throw, I don't know, throw knives and swords at Jesus. Why didn't Satan do that? It's not the way Satan normally comes after us, I guess. He had this free shot at Jesus, but he tempts him in other ways. What is Satan doing? Let's go back to the baptism real quick. What's happening at the baptism? See, I love this, and let me try to flesh this out. John the Baptist is confused because Jesus wants him to baptize him, Jesus. And John the Baptist says, what are you doing? I need to be baptized by you, and you're coming to me? Look back a little bit if you have your Bible open at verse 11. John says this, I baptize you with water for repentance. Why does he say that? Everybody knows at this time, this baptism is a baptism of repentance. Jesus is sinless. Jesus doesn't need to repent. Therefore, there would be no reason Jesus would need to get baptized. John's going, whoa, 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 dude, you need to baptize me. Why are you, what, why are you asking me to baptize you? And Jesus basically says, let it be so now. He says, Jesus knows he's sinless. Jesus is not being baptized to repent. He doesn't need to repent. He knows that. He says, it is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And there's all kinds of things going on there. It is the, it's the initiation ceremony to his, bap, or to his ministry somewhat. I think he's validating John's ministry. I think he's modeling for us why baptism is important. But there's more going on. Jesus comes as a servant. And get this, Jesus always comes, I've said this before, as a substitute savior. John goes, this is supposed to be flipped around. And Jesus says, no, 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 I come as a substitute. It's always the reversal of values with the kingdom of God. Jesus comes and says, I'm going to be baptized for you. He says, I'm living the life that you should have lived, John. And you know what? And I'm going to die the death that you deserve to die. Jesus is always, he comes as a substitute. He does not come as a militant, superpower, warlord kind of God to take over the place. He comes as a substitute. How does Satan attack? Satan wants Jesus to not be a substitute. Satan wants Jesus to be this religious hero. Satan wants Jesus to take all the power on himself. In fact, Satan wants Jesus to act like every other religion acts. Just says, go and be great. Go and do miraculous 
things. Go and be the best you possibly can and be God. Satan says, you need to be selfish. Don't be a servant. But Jesus comes as a servant, as a suffering servant. In fact, I don't have time to go into this. When God says, the voice from heaven says, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased, he's quoting scripture. God is quoting scripture. Look at your footnotes in the Bible. He's quoting from Psalm 2 and from Isaiah 42. This this, uh, messianic psalm and this passage in Isaiah 42 is talking about the suffering servant. Jesus, or God himself, as he says this to Jesus, is saying, my son is this suffering servant. He is coming in your place to do what you could not do for yourself. And so all, G, all, the, all Satan's trying to do is to like trip him up. Say, no, 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 don't submit to your father. Jesus, you should be the father. You should, you should have all the power that God does. You know what, just, if you floated off the temple, Jesus, you don't need, you can get the crown without, without the cross. You can get the mountaintop without the valley. These people need someone to look at. These people need a hero, right? These people need religion. Jesus says, no, they need a servant. They need someone to die in their place. And so Jesus submits to his father, and we need to do that too. Finally, what are the weapons? Maybe you expected this to come. There's, a, there's weapons here, right? In any battle, there's an enemy. You've got to figure out how that, how that enemy is attacking. But what are the weapons we use? So Jesus received at his baptism two things, and these are our weapons. Number one, the Spirit of God, and secondly, the Word of God. Maybe you're going, the Word of God, the voice from heaven speaks to him, and again, God's quoting Scripture. But man, Scripture is probably our greatest weapon. And then the Spirit of God, so many of us, we don't even know how to tap into the Spirit. Like, what does that even mean? Or does that get all sort of weird, mysterious, and I'm not charismatic, but... Man, we go, spirit is like God's change agent on the world, or in the world right now, you guys. So we have two dynamite weapons at our disposal as Christians, the spirit of God and the word of God. Here's Satan's weapons, just that I see him in the text, right? Number one, he questions our identity. He will always question your identity. Go, bro, you're not good enough. Bro, you deserve to do that. You've had a long day. You are stressed out of your mind. You have all this homework to do. Why don't you just go do that instead? Questions our identity. Because why? Right above verse 17, God says, this is my son whom I love. Verse 3 of chapter 4, the tempter says, if you are the son of God, he says it twice, verse 6, if you are the son of God, man, Satan is always questioning God, right? Genesis 3 Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? I mean, he always is like taking what God's God's word and twisting it. So he questions our identity. Secondly, he preys on our weaknesses. We all have weaknesses, right? At this point in our lives, I mean, again, we have ingrained, we just have sin. We have original sin. We were born sinful. Thanks to our forefathers, Adam and Eve. Thank you for that, Adam and Eve. We were born sin. We all have habitual sins already in our life. Uh, I guess in this case, prayers on our weaknesses. I mean, being hungry is not sinful, but Jesus was hungry. So again, that's not sinful. But for us, he prays on our weaknesses. Like, he knows where we're tempted. He knows where we're prone to be tempted. He knows what he can like, try to get us to do. Oh, you could, you could say something right now. Man, all your friends are talking about her. You totally should like, say what you think. But for Jesus, he was just, I mean, it says he was hungry. That is an understatement. 
you know what, Jesus? You could make these stones bread. It's in your power to do that. He preys on our weaknesses. And thirdly, he uses our weapons against us. So what happens? You all, he quotes scripture at Jesus. Satan throws out scripture to Jesus. And I don't know what Jesus thought of that, but again, he's, he goes, well, it also says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Satan, man, I hate you. I mean, Jesus is like, come on. I don't know. I don't know. What, like, that would have been crazy. And how was Satan physically, was he actually there standing next to him? Or was this all in his mind? Was Satan like in Jesus' head? And Jesus is out in the barren desert, and he just knows, this is not my thoughts, this is Satan's thoughts. You ever think about that? Is that your conscience, conscience, when you're tempted to do things? How do you know if it's the spirit or if it's the demonic? Well, Scripture, you guys. Know your Bible really well. Get to know it really well. Because God will never tell you to do something that contradicts Scripture. Scripture. 